This is going to be a bit of a year in review episode here, but I do have some really important things to say. You know, along the way in this first season of the Neutral Ground podcast, I got to speak with some amazing people, and they all began the same way. I have got Dr. Matthew Jacobson, Lori Singer, Nick Gibson, my friend of 25 years, Scott Hyam, Amanda Huffman, Ben Kiloy, Dr. Tim Overton, Matt Monroe, the great DC Glenn, PJ Weary, Dr. Kimberly Max Brown, Dr. Sheila Murnahan, David Fishoff, with Dr. Alex Hershaft. Welcome to the neutral ground. I believe wholeheartedly that anybody who comes on my show should always feel welcomed and invited. Now, I did have some difficulties along the way. Nick, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here. Happy to happy to have have you on. <laughs> Sorry, I pulled that. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally fine. It's great. Um. Uh. Oh. Did we lose Max? I think we did. Modern modern technology here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. I don't know why. It may be a break in the the uh, in internet access, but yeah, I think she might be coming back. There you go. There we go. <laughs> there I don't know what happened, but I got pushed out. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I also had some highlights as well. I learned that you have a a bachelor's right in communication, but you had a focus in theater. Now. <laughs> He's he's done his research. Absolutely, because I I mean I, I I've been meaning to get this off my chest the whole whole conversation, but sprinkles. Thank you. You just made my wife's day. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doctor Hershaft, I I can't think of a of a better way to end this than than on that note that we all for meaning we have to go out and you can't just believe in good you have to do it you have to do good. Thank you so much. This was absolutely, uh, truly an, an honor to sit here with you and listen to your story. My pleasure. It was probably the, the most stimulating uh, podcast I've done. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much for that. <laughs> Something that I, I strive for and I will continue to strive for with this show is to try to continue to model civil discourse about important issues like exposing the darkness within humanity, working on our mental health, exploring how we can help our veterans more, finding meaning when we need it most in life, understanding celebrity culture, and breaking down how we communicate with each other. What follows are just some of my favorite moments from the first season. If you want to check out the full episode of a particular discussion, you can use the timestamps in the episode notes below for reference. Now, if you're watching this on my YouTube channel, which I encourage anyone who has not yet subscribed to it to do so, you already know when a new conversation is starting from the screen in front of you. However, for my podcast listeners on audio-only platforms, I'm going to play the following sound. I'm going to use that to indicate when I'm moving on to a new conversation, just so things don't blend together too much. Now, if I've provided any moments of thoughtfulness or levity to you, consider hitting the subscribe slash follow button and leave me a kind rating or review where applicable. I'm trying to get this message of hopefulness and civil discourse to more people, and you can certainly help with a few clicks of the mouse and keyboard. Finally, I've got a special message, 
at the end of the episode as well. Until then, enjoy these moments from the first season of the Neutral Ground podcast. It's an, and that exchange in particular, I think, is really it's entertaining. It's it's kind of you know, I'm glad I had that preface first, but it, it's an entertaining banter because you have Bill Bill Burr, this legendary uh, roaster, you know, on the spot comedian who can just. I, mean, I think I mentioned in the dissertation, but he's sort of became really famous after this mm-hmm. this rant. Uh, I forget, in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, yeah, yeah where he just roasted. <laughs> He just roasted an audience for like, I don't know, his entire set time in a really knowledgeable ways of yeah. like Philadelphia uh, things and, and sort of like became this, this superstar because of it. And he's, he's amazing at ranting. And when he gets fired up, you're like, oh, this is going to be so good because he's just going to he's going to say something. And he did, you know, in that in the uh, exchange where it's like, wow, this is um, these are hilarious. like, oh, you you're so tough with your open nose and throat or whatever. Yes. <laughs> you know, just, that line at the, at, toward yeah. the end of that exchange, <laughs> you know, and they, they talk about, of course, masculinity and, and yeah. something that you had mentioned before, right. Uh, about again, the, these ideas of mediums and picking up different kind of communicative data points, right. Yeah. As I'm listening to it, like most people do, what I'm not getting a hundred percent of is when Rogan initiates the conversation. If you watch him, the video of it on, let's say, YouTube or, or Spotify, wherever it is yeah. now, if you look at his face, you can tell that he's just trying to start something. And yeah. there's a point there where he knows that he can push his friend's button. But you don't get that, I think, initially when you just listen. In the audio, it becomes, I think, clearer later on because, you know, yeah. Rogan starts to laugh and this and that. But yeah. Oh, the, yeah. <laughs> that initial mass question where he says very flatly, very seriously about, yeah. you know, let's get into it. Let's yeah. talk about it. You're thinking, oh, there's a tense, a tense moment there for a minute where you're like, oh, something is about to happen between two giants here. Yeah. We're going to see it's like, you know, King Kong versus Godzilla. It's yeah. a Titan <laughs> war all of a sudden, right? Where you're like, oh boy, what's going to happen here? That idea. And I thought your your point about the, the, the rhetoric of masculinity there, and this is where I'm, I'm going to quote you here because I thought it was fascinating. Okay. You, you mentioned that Newsweek, after hearing that, there was a lot of blowback against Rogan for that exchange and, and, and particularly. And you had mentioned that someone like Newsweek had written a piece on it and had laid out facts mm-hmm. that kind of went against what Rogan was saying. But you added something to the end here. You added a, a possible problem. You said, in fact, highlighting, which is what they were trying to do, mm-hmm. the dangers of coronavirus may have the opposite effect leading such audiences to believe that not wearing a mask is even more masculine and brave, possibly even heroic because of the undeniable danger. And I thought, that's fascinating how trying to provide elements of, of facts, they're thinking maybe they can undercut what Rogan is saying, and you're sort of saying, well, that might not actually work, it might even be worse. So can you clarify and talk a little bit about that yeah yeah and that so that's um that's more of a I, you know i don't have concrete 
you know, uh, studies or anything that would say that that's the case, or I can't cite any at the moment. Um, but it, it kind of points this issue with communication, right? When someone is going in and saying just, all right, we're laying out facts in this, uh, in this article, right? And we're going to debunk something or just, or just point it out. Um, in some ways, it's kind of, ah, I don't want to say that it's like totally moot because I, I think people do learn. But the, the people who are reading that article based on the headline already have their ideas about um, mask wearing and its, its effectiveness, right? So having all these facts, useful, but what I mean, it's not going to really do much to convince people who are skeptical, right? Who are skeptical of, of traditional media, which, which Rogan's podcast is an alternative to in some ways. Um, but yeah, I, there's, there's so many reasons that people who don't wear masks rhetorically um, could, could argue for not, not wearing them, right? It's, uh, if it's not brave because, it's, um, because there's some real danger out there, then it's brave because people are going to judge you for it. It's just mm-hmm. kind of this contrary thing. Like, oh, I, I'm not concerned about other people's opinions of me. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna keep going and, and behaving this way, uh, you know, in spite of them. And in fact, that might that might fuel me. And if I do believe in the in the uh, in the science of it, well, then I'm confident in my uh, immune system because I take all these vitamins that Rogan sells through on it that I will be uh, totally protected against this this virus. And I have no, I have no reason to worry. So I'm 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 being tough by by being willing to test my. Uh, faith and my confidence in my own body um in this in this performative way in in, in public so i you just never know hearing that story can have an uplifting effect on all of us to a degree and and that's what i like about the whole connection of narrative here in general the way you narrated from beginning to end um you know, including the wonderful ending stories which were were fantastic to read the results that happened were wonderful well let me let me ask you this then, because it's an important question. What it, it, it's we all have to a degree anxiety, right? And in some ways, it's built into us from evolution, even, right? So, where do you see professionally the line between, let's call it a normal level of anxiety, for lack of better term, for just for clarity here, normal level? When does it become a problem that must be addressed. Yes, we all have anxiety. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, I have anxiety still myself, but I'm able to control it because I put it in perspective. Um, it's when we can't control it, when it starts to consume our thoughts, uh, when it becomes, when it starts to affect our lives, either socially, uh, with our job, with our education our outside life with our relationships to others, when it starts to affect us in that way or become to where we ourselves feel like it's overwhelming, these negative thoughts, then we need to seek help. Because um, what's interesting is when people come to see me, they don't realize what I have to instill in them is that self-confidence that you really are in control of what you think. They don't believe that they are. They don't believe that they can control what they think. They can stop themselves and say, hey, I am not going to let you come into my my mind. That's it. You're going out. They, uh, they've given up and they've just let that negative thought process take over. 
So I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, absolutely. Right. I mean, because I mean, I guess, you know, even I had anxiety about anytime I'm beginning an interview, I'm anxious, you know, about it, but it didn't prevent me from logging on, saying hello to you and, and starting this interview. However, I could I envision a point where it could for someone? Of course, absolutely. And you can imagine how even just, you know, one time leading to two, leading to three and four, and now you have a, a real pattern, right? You mentioned patterns in the book. You have a real pattern that you start to become comfortable with of, of avoiding that that particular moment and how something that I see just just every you know semester with with young freshman college students is how quickly that pattern can build and become something something you know much more and 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 correct me if I'm wrong the the more you wait I would imagine the more difficult it becomes because we're patternistic you know, we're a patternistic species, really. Is that correct? Am I assuming too much? No, that is 100% correct. It's 100% correct. Um, there's there's two things here. And, and one is that the longer you engage in a behavior, the harder it is to change. I mean, that's just a fact. You can think of smoking cigarettes. I mean, if, if somebody came in to see me and they said, hey, I've been smoking for 30 years. I want to quit. I'd say, okay, great. And I'd write a plan. It's going to be more difficult for them to quit than if somebody else came in an hour later and say, Hey, I want to quit smoking. I just started six months ago. Well, the typically the person that started six months ago is going to have a much easier time than the person that started, um, 30 years ago. Um, and I, and I did talk about in my book too, um, how when I was experiencing anxiety, which then turned into panic attacks or I wouldn't drive on the freeway and, how realistic is that when you live in Southern California, especially yeah. my job at the travel from house to house. So that I had to get that taken care of right away because I wasn't going to be able to continue working if I wasn't going to go on the freeway. Yeah. A very real, real life example. And, and you know, something else then that you mentioned in the book, uh, this particular section as, as well, I'll, I'll read it here because I thought it was really powerful which was you, you talk at one point about when they first and like kind of enter the office with you, right? And you say, we can all agree that we want to solve this problem, right? So are we all willing to commit to participation in the work at hand? And then you say this, you say, this moment is always key. I try whenever possible to get a verbal yes from everyone. Why? Why is it important for you to get a verbal or vocal yes in that moment? So it's interesting that you say that because there's typically when a family comes in, it could be just the mother and child or a couple. There's always one that's skeptical, you know, mm -hmm. no matter how large the group is. And so I can I can typically read body language and just pick out the one who is not really on board. So then I will tell them, like, if it was you. I'd say, Joe, you know, <laughs> is that, are you in agreement? Do you, are you, going? so I will, I do, I'll, I'll call people out and I'll say, okay, I need for you to look at me and let me know, are you, are you going to buy into this? Are you going to be a part of it? Because it's really important that you do. And then you might say, well, you know, 
I, we've tried therapy before and just, just isn't going to work. But I, you know, my mom told me I had to come or she wouldn't let me watch videos or something. Uh, so at least if you're on end, I say, well, I appreciate your honesty. That's great. But I need to know that you're going to at least try and we'll go from there. What do you think it is about that particular storyline in humanity that we keep returning to it? This idea of needing to find purpose. Well, it all kind of comes back to the eternal question. What is the meaning of life? And, and to be perfectly frank, the answer is whatever you want it to be. That's my personal opinion anyway. And that's every person who's ever lived have, has at one point asked themselves the question, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose for being on this floating rock in space? <laughs> you know, there's nothing more tragic than a meaningless existence. We want to believe that our time on this planet had meaning, you know. Yeah, and there there is a, a almost a special kind of horror in in having that meaningless existence, right? Like in in some ways many of us, if not all of us have had moments maybe where we've questioned our purpose and or what is the purpose, let's say. And I think we can all agree that those are, are not particularly good moments for us, right? Purpose drives us to be better, to look for better things in ourselves and better things in each other as well. I'm, I'm curious. It's the reason what, why so many people oh, join cults or... Oh, oh sorry, I was well, talking yeah. over you. No, 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 you're, you're good. We can go in that, that way as well. It's, it's, it connects very much with what we're saying too, this idea of, of cults, because what, what is it that cults are able to do for people is provide story, right? And purpose. Provide meaning, provide existence, provide community. And, and cult leaders particularly prey on those type of people. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, and it's strong. It, it's, a, it's such a strong pull when you don't have meaning in your life. If for anyone who can offer you, uh, we'll use the term easy, an easy access to meaning. If someone can offer that to you, we can certainly understand why someone would take it. And so I think you're right that maybe also what we're talking about here too is is that pull of narrative structure and meaning is is so powerful that we are willing, many of us, to give up our own personal narratives and structures if if we have someone there who can provide maybe more, a more stable one in the moment. Yeah, and I was as you're talking, I was thinking of how I think Norm even says in an interview with um, Mark Maron how he doesn't actually like abstractness, like he likes to just he doesn't think like that. It's almost like when he speaks, he wants to get very clear to the point where it's not this, you know, innuendo or this type of talk where it's like when he's speaking and when when he says something, it's very like, oh, Norm is saying this, you know, and uh, it's it's he doesn't like mince words, you know, mm-hmm. it's like it, he doesn't actually and he doesn't. You know, like Chappelle, Chappelle will do a great job of painting a story, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's a lot of, um, like you see in construction, where I think um, Norm's constructing too, but it's almost like he takes like shortcuts in a way to get to his point. You know, he's just like, I'm going to say this, this, and uh, and let and kind of just let the let the you know let the audience like just hit the audience, and then it, either the audience will laugh mm-hmm. or the audience will go like they'll just drop their jaw a little bit. You know, which I think goes back to why. He might, you know, your your argument is um, you don't think he's a comedian's comedian. Um, yeah, um, I, I, because I don't. Because he might not appeal. Yeah. Could you I, explain that a little bit? 
Yeah, yeah I, I guess what I'm trying, and, and I'm struggling with this still, which is why it, it's coming across, it's coming across exactly the way it, it is in my head right now, which is a little bit in disarray because I'm, yeah. I'm struggling to try to explain exactly why it's hitting me in a weird way. I guess because, and again, I'll just use someone like Chappelle as an example. I, I kind of feel like he's more of a stand-up comedian's comedian in the vein of someone like Chappelle or Seinfeld, someone who... Respected. Who, who not even just respected, but they respect what it takes to not simply write a joke, but all of them, what they do is they write and think about how am I, how is the audience consuming every word? And that mm. is not, that's not something that you see in every stand-up comedian. It just isn't. There is, there is like, there are times when you have throwaway words and throwaway lines in stand-up comedy, right? Like, and we don't pay too much attention to it all the time, as long as we get a good joke at the end. But with someone like Norm and Chappelle and Seinfeld, these these people who how, who construct and and interact with the the audience, the minds, that's the kind of comedian that I think of who would truly kind of say, "We've lost." someone here mm. in that vein because like and i'll bring this up not for for controversy reasons but just to bring it up you know on the, the joe rogan podcast with Chappelle, rogan was talking about his friend andrew schultz and he brought up the type of comedy that schultz does online and Chappelle, in a very respectful way he literally says, with all due respect, and he means it, he says, that's not what I do. And there, there's something about that moment <laughs> when you can feel that Chappelle is really trying to say, don't, don't put him in the same category as me, not in some human way as if Chappelle feels better than Andrew Schultz but in a genre way of comedy. Like, mm. I am a stand-up comedian. I write jokes. I write purposeful language. And I try to lead my audience on a journey with each joke. And of course, Rogan does the same thing. In that, in that moment, Rogan is trying to be a really good friend to, to his friend, Andrew Schultz. And I, that's fine. I get that. But I also know, because Rogan does take his time in writing out, he, he talks about writing a lot as a craft, Rogan probably also felt in that moment, okay, I get it. Let me not push this. I'm not mm. going to push this idea because it is a different genre of, of stand-up comedy. And I think that's what I'm getting at. I'm hearing a lot of comedians say, he's a comedian's comedian, and part of me wants to just say, well, he's a certain type of comedian's comedian, I think. And I'm not even sure if I'm right. I'm not going to claim to be right. I'm not going to claim to have some sort of grand point here. It was just <laughs> something that every so often someone will say in these, these norm videos where they're talking about him passing away that always makes me go, really? You're claiming yeah. him too? 
I want to just give you some space and some freedom to just kind of talk about how you're personally narrating and making sense or processing this drawdown and the ends of the Iraq-Afghanistan wars. How are you kind of navigating that and, and making sense of it yourself being someone who was deployed to Afghanistan? So I kind of had forgotten, not that the war was going on, but I guess I kind of felt like we were just going to always be there. I never really saw an end of the war. And so even when President Trump was talking about leaving, I was like, oh, something's going to happen. And they're going to say, no, we need to stay. And so when they actually left, when the U.S. actually left, I I was kind of surprised and I wasn't quite ready to deal with all the emotions <laughs> that I felt because I I deployed in 2010 to Afghanistan and even then I knew that if we left Afghanistan that things would unravel rather quickly just by the basis of talking to my translators that I worked with when I was over there and their feelings about Afghanistan. I remember one of the translator. He was talking about how Afghanistan, how your country is supposed to be like your mother and it's supposed to protect you. And he said he felt abandoned by his country. And he was really smart and educated. He knew English and Dari and Pashtu. And he was just working with the Americans because he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. And he had, even in 2010, he didn't have any desire to stay and make the country better. He just felt betrayed. And that conversation has gone over and I mean, I haven't really, I hadn't really thought about it in 10 years. And then when everything was falling apart and the people were, you know, the Taliban was taking over, I just kept thinking about how even 10 years ago, he kind of already told me and the other engineer I was with that it was all going to fall apart. And so that story and that conversation kind of has been going over and over in my mind. And then another con interpreter that I was connected with through Facebook that we've stayed connected on social media, and he was stuck in Afghanistan. And so talking to him via messenger and getting updates about the fear and the danger, he sent me pictures and he told me that they were hiding in their basement. And um, I was able to help donate money to a specific organization that he was working with, and he's now in the United States. And so I feel like I didn't do enough, but I also feel like I really, we gave money to him and his family, and they were able to get out, and that was kind of all we could afford to do. So I kind of been, been focusing on, like, helping that one person or his family, so it's more than one person, and how... That was really important, but I also feel guilty because I feel like not everybody got out and there was so much other stuff going on. And I've had people contact me that I don't actually know who just know I deployed to Afghanistan and they're like desperate for help and I, I can't help them. And it really makes it hard to be in the situation that I am. So finding the right boundaries and there's a lot going on if you can't tell. <laughs> But I want to go towards an idea of what you hit on of a being almost a purposeful mission to pursue the life within the home that I like to break down the word integrity. It's hung all over corporate America as a core value. 
but it's not really broken down in the right sense of how we need to show up in a whole version. So within integrity, there's a root word integer. Integer in mathematics is a whole number. It's unfractioned. So to have structural integrity in your life, you need to have a whole life because a fraction life is going to be a house of cards that maybe has two, or, uh, two by fours on one side of the building and steel structures on the other. And no matter how many floors you're going to let build, that one side is just going to crash. So your integrity, how much whole version are you showing up as is actually determining like how much of life you can lift because if you don't have, you have a lopsided idea of it and you're living fraction, you're only showing up as one version. You can't actually experience all of the areas of life. And eventually all of those, I think this is why we have such a high divorce rate because many men are living a fraction life because that's what they were told to do. And when the industrial revolution and people were told to go off into the workplace, and that was almost where like the Plato's idea of the modern world is that's where men are meant to go instead of the battlefield to fight the neighboring tribes. It's go provide for your family, but there still is a component of a wholeness that you still need to be this whole version. And one thing that I want to, you probably will get a, a good kick out of this. I didn't have any appreciation for it in English literature in sophomore year, but Plato's allegory of the cave, the ability to watch the world against the cave and not be able to see what's actually creating the shadows, that it, it that allegory man, if that doesn't speak to a lot of the problems of what we have, because people are watching the illusion of their life through their eyes. And what people don't really realize connected to that is how you see the world is how you see your life. And those two are connected. And you can't see the world as a bright, abundant place of joy if you don't yet see your life as abundant place of joy. These two are existentially linked. And most people don't even pause even in this case, to turn around and see what's behind me. It's all about the illusion that's on the screen because that's all I was told I could look at, and that's how I've learned to see the world. Absolutely. Two weeks ago, we, we went over Plato's allegory of the cave, and we talked about, similarly to what you just mentioned, we talked about the prisoners who are chained and just staring at the shadows, and we even talked about the idea of how sometimes people are feel a little bit too comfortable just being there chained up and how you can actually learn to love that life being chained up and just watching the shadows and how that even though you're experiencing what you believe is a kind of comfort in that area it's a very dangerous place to be because you never Your safety then comes with that because you know absolutely the, you know what the dangers are you know that this is how like it's your ego your ego is wired to keep your brain alive and so it doesn't like change because it likes knowing all the variables right now. Even if those variables are a bad job, it doesn't pay the bills. But knowing how the world works is a very solidifying feeling. And the more you solidify with that thought, the more you can just accept. And within the American culture, this is something that we don't often slow down, but it really smacked people in the face when the pandemic hit. Consumerism requires us to stay in patterns. It requires us to believe we need a target run every weekend to stay happy. There's a very important nuance between nostalgia for, you know, how it used to be when I had all of my friends, or in the case of the military, had all of my, my, you know, my my veteran brothers and sisters, you know, helping in something important. Do you? Is there a way to determine when nostalgia becomes? you're starting that feedback loop 
in in pulling away from society and does that in some way add to the depression i guess what i'm asking is is this something that veterans have to be aware of when that nostalgia becomes this is now depression in a sense yeah i I think the you know and that's why i love that question about like whether or not a thought is helpful as opposed to realistic right because i think there are some folks who can have the same thought of you know i i'm a better version of myself when i'm around other people or when i was around these people right and for some folks like that can be a thought that sparks oh okay well now what i need to do is i've got to find other like-minded people you know in my current context and take advantage of that um but there's other people who might say well i can't be happy until i get back you know in, until i get back to that and i think that second person is somebody who's going to be more likely to develop you know a depressive reaction i had a big meet with my agents they're like dc what do you want i was like you guys do a great job for me i'm i'm humble dc what do you want what kind of roles i'm like you guys do a great job for me and this one phrase changed my life lena said this was in january I said dc what is your bucket list and i was like oh that's a different question, right? I said, I want to be in The Mandalorian. I want to be in Star Wars, the Star Wars universe, live action or animation. And then, you know, this was right before the press release. I dropped that press release the ne- on a Wednesday of the Super Bowl. The next day, I get a call from the Dan Patrick Show. The Dan Patrick Show says, we need y'all on Super Bowl Friday. I'm on the Dan Patrick Show National TV Super Bowl Friday because of a press release, (laughs) right? And not only that, you have to let people see you hustle. Mm -hmm. So I'm on the National TV and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm working on being in The Mandalorian and the Star Wars universe. So George Lucas and Dave Leone, if you're listening, you need to come holler at me. Now, I don't expect nothing of that, but I threw it out there because you never know. It might be somebody like, hey, man, the, the, the scoop there, the Sprinkles guys was was was, set, was talking about wanting to be in The Mandalorian. And, Lee, you know, John Favreau, my kids love that commercial. Call his agent. You never know how it's going to happen, but you can go through these scenarios in your head, and then that makes it worth it to throw it out there. And then I also knew that Geico's listening because this was big. And they got to make sure that we don't mess up their brand by talking stupid, right? And I'm like, okay, let me see how much they really listen. I said, yeah, we're about to do a, a serious tag team challenge on on uh, on TikTok. So be listening for it, everybody. Two days later, hey, DC, um, yeah, Gaka wanted to know what that tag team TikTok challenge is all about. They want to get behind that. Ah, you listening. Now I get to impose my will. Now it's about my creativity. Now I get to influence. I get to inspire. I get to let them see me hustle. And so I absolutely like you, I, I encourage people to not simply read, but reread. And, you know, this kind of maybe brings us into the next kind of question I have here. I'm, I'm curious about another thread that I found in your, in your podcast. That thread being uh, an appreciation for order and discipline 
And I'm wondering what's the connection there between kind of the language order and discipline as you see it? Sure. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you picked up on that because it's not something that I even necessarily know how that became a thread. It's interesting, sure. you know, in the podcast evolution, how you find your voice and kind of find the mm -hmm. rhythm of things. And you're right, that has emerged. And when I go back, when I have the time and listen to older episodes, which is a is a challenging thing to do as you get deeper into yes. it, you go back and listen with with horror at some of the things that yes. the, the early days, as it were. But uh, you're right, there is a certain amount of, you know, order and discipline that I think comes from that. And there's, there's a self-improvement piece that is tucked into almost every episode because those words clearly stood out. I used to call it my leadership quote book um, because it was designed to kind of enhance my my leadership. It was lessons learned and and words captured from people who I admired or at least felt challenged by as a leader. So the idea there, I guess you could the the rudimentary way to look at it would be well it, it clearly traces back to the fact that you know Marines and people in the military in general tend to be fairly ordered and fairly disciplined. So that must be why. But what I really think it is more so for me is that life is a challenge. From the moment we wake up, we're inundated with information. We are forced to make decisions. I had a guest on recently that referenced and said the average person makes 35,000 decisions in a day. Some of them are significant. Some of them are relatively insignificant. But that's a lot of a requirement on a, on a person, on the mental capacity of a person. And life is hard. And then you, you mix in all the challenges of, you know, spouses and children and, and coworkers and friends and family that you have to interact with. And you have to navigate all of those things. And it can feel very disordered as a result of that. It can feel very chaotic. And it's the type of thing that um, has, you know, causes people to need to, to talk to, to someone, to have, you know, whether it be a therapist or a close friend or something, to try to sort out the madness. And I think when you hear words, especially historical words, when we look back at Mark Twain and Benjamin Franklin and other historical figures throughout time, and you, you get the richness of the context from the words that they said, because you understand, at least what I hope to do is to deliver the context of those words so that people understand that the founding fathers or, you know, the, the, the homers of the world, the, as far back as you can go, their lives were complicated too. They were people that were challenged. And yet in the midst of all of that difficulty and challenge and disorder and seeming chaos emerges these iconic phrases that drift through time, perpetuated and handed off generation to generation, and then land in my lap and then land on the podcast and land in somebody else's ears. And to me, it shows the humanity of these great enlightened thinkers whose names a lot of times you only see attached to a colorful background with colorful words, that little, you know, the dash and then that person's name. And you think this person had it figured out. This person got it. But what you don't realize is that chaos and disorder and challenge have existed since time immemorial, And they sorted through it the way that we are. So in drawing from their words, I think it helps me find a certain sense of that order and discipline that you referenced. Most people don't understand the, the butterfly effect. The point of the butterfly effect is not that little things have big consequences. It's that we cannot determine how those little things will interact to make big consequences. So, and this is true, and this is 
kind of mind-boggling. We could put sensors around the entire Earth, uh, every foot squared, up through the stratosphere. And mm -hmm. we would still only be able to predict the weather up to two weeks away. Because the differences, the minor fluctuations in the in between the sensors within a foot of space would ultimately create uh, mathematically would create vastly different results over uh, at, at a certain point. I don't I don't know if that made sense. Should I try and no, no, say it, it again? Or yeah, no, no. I, the the idea is is there's only again it kind of actually circles back even to Job. Uh, because yeah. the idea is there's only so much that you can know as it yeah. is over a certain period of time and so much that you can predict. My uh, my brother-in-law is actually um, <laughs> actually predicts the weather for the uh, oh. <laughs> National Weather Service. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we always joke with him, you know, about, you know, the, how people are saying, how could they be, be wrong so many times? You know, but in actuality, it has to do with what you're talking about, that there's only so many data points that you, you can even use or have yep. access to, to be able to predict. And then of course, those data points can switch at a given moment, and that can change the entire model for the weather yes. for, the, for the next day even, or even the day of. Yes. And that's what people don't realize about life. And that's where I think the whole chasing Leviathan makes sense. At any moment, I could find a detail that is just really problematic that forces me to reevaluate everything. And so that's like, even as we're talking about individual suffering and it's better than it's ever been before, um, there's value in that. I do believe that. Um, but I don't want, like, we cannot discount the, the reality of details. And ultimately, if you, if you get too systemic, eventually your system will get flipped. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because you're thinking, you get caught thinking a certain way. You made me think about Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and how you've got both Frodo and Samwise Gamgee returning from this conflict of trying to bring the, the ring, right, to mount, you know, doom and destroy it. And at one point, and this again stuck with me when I reread it about two or three years ago now, was just what made Samwise able to come back home and, and rejoin civilization was his complete and utter belief in the home, mm. in the structure that's there. And you might even say, I mean, we could certainly talk about how both of them are going to have certain problems, right? Because you had just mentioned that can also lead to potential distortions as well, because the home, of course, is never the same completely when you come back. But it's such a strong thing for him to have to believe it when he's away, that there is a home and that I am still a part mm -hmm. of it and that I need to be there. Whereas with Frodo, of course, he comes back, he's forever changed by his experience, and he just basically flat out says, this home is not here for me anymore. And both of them you have to be so careful about when you're talking about real problems, mm -hmm. right? We You never want... There are a lot of veterans, I would assume, who come home feeling like Frodo and say, this home was not preserved for me anymore. And we have to help them and tell them, no, 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 no. There is a home here for you, absolutely, and you are very much a part of it, but also helping those who want to keep that image, like Sam, to say, 
don't expect it to be exactly the same. But understand mm. that you do still want to believe that there's a structure there of support and, and love and whatnot. And, and it's just, I hadn't thought about it again until both of you just mentioned it, but it, it it's, yeah, very strong to me. I, absolutely. Well, I could see I, the fight. Can I add something? Please, of course. Yes. So for Frodo, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And, you know, Tolkien as the great classicist and all that. So, of course, I would love the Lord of the Rings. However, what I wanted to say is that for Frodo, Frodo also has, he's come away with a measure of shame hmm. over his uh, behavior. Yes. You know, he wasn't able to resist the power of the ring. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that feeling of shame, you know, and the, one of the things, Bridget, and you, you've experienced this. We, as the, as the community that needs to welcome the veteran home again, we have to make space for them to be able to grapple with that shame because that was something that they took on on our behalf, all right? They are totally set up to be like, you're going to defend this, that, and the third about the United States. And so when the veteran returns, because there's probably been some shameful acts that will have occurred, uh, depending on how the veteran responds to that, they may need more help from mm -hmm. the community. Frodo got no help when he got went home. There wasn't somebody saying, you know, let's have a, a giant party to welcome you back. He just sort of kind of slid into things still with this degree of shame uh, embedded in his personality. So I'm not surprised that he found it really hard to stay at home where Sam Wise didn't have to struggle with that. So similarly, you know, our, we, would, we could look at that as something called a moral injury, hmm. as a play out of a moral injury. So at our VA in Philadelphia, the Christians VA Medical Center, we have a moral injury group that is really working hard to not only help the veteran understand like their service, but to encourage the community to take upon itself a real ceremony that enables that veteran to return to the community, um, to you know, to not be divested of the shame, but to certainly have that shame or, or the acts that they witnessed or perpetrated or whatever, to have those things be in a perspective. And, and, uh, yeah, if I could just throw something in, yeah, and, and I've, I've taken sure. part in, um, in one of these um, ceremonies and they're mm -hmm. incredibly, it, it was a really powerful, moving experience. Um, and I think that this involvement of civilians in these ceremonies, um, speaks to one of the most important differences between the ancient world and the modern world, which is that in the ancient world, every, you know, um, man of a certain age um, participated in the military. It was, it pervaded the society and everyone was involved in war. And um, we now live in a, such a different society where we kind of outsource that to a very small proportion of the population. And we send those people to do things in our name that we don't always own. And um, so I think a program like that is really important. And dialogues like the ones that we have in Eternal Soldier between people who have served and people who haven't um, are really, really important. One thing you mentioned before that I've talked about even with other people as well is this this idea of the the collection, the data right. part. And this is a very straightforward question to you. Do we undervalue 
the importance of our private data. <laughs> yeah, by a lot. Uh, I mean, the the short answer is yes. We we undervalue that because it is big business, and there are a lot of people making a lot of money on you right now. You know, as we are as you are listening to this episode in your app, data is being collected about you, um, and it may seem in like individual drops like it's not much. But there was a – do you remember um, on Facebook here several months back, there was a lot of stuff spreading about answer these 10 questions. 99% of people can't do it. And it was stupid stuff like what was your first dog or you know, what was your first car or what was the name of your, your grandpa? And a lot of people would be like, don't answer those questions. They're – trying to scrape security questions from you. And hmm. the thing about that was that was like a trial run. There are now uh, bot, algorithm, bot algorithms running on Facebook actively right now that are sharing things that are much less insidious, much harder to pick out, and what they're doing is they're asking you to you know maybe answer a question or something like this and it doesn't it's not like a security question obviously it's like you know oh you know uh, if you, if you're baking a cake what's the one ingredient you can't do, do without and it's like that doesn't seem weird but when you look at engagement numbers on them and how facebook measures engagement what they're doing is they are building entire sentiment profiles on people and what you react to, even without commenting, just by clicking that like button and choosing one of the little icons, they're collecting sentiment data. They're saying what you will and won't react to. What kind of posts do you click on? What kind of posts do you answer things on? What do you say? We've now got enough machine learning that the way you word things can be used to determine what kind of individual you are. Are you a liberal? Are you a conservative? They can tell without asking you political questions now. And that stuff is going somewhere. Somebody is paying yeah. a lot of money for a lot of very high-tech stuff to be done. And not knowing what's going to come from that is a scary thing to me about the future of, of web and, and what it means. Because what it ends up doing is... Sentiment is used against you. Your preferences are used against you. Remember, I said tools like Instagram are designed to keep you staring at Instagram. And it, you know, right now, that just means, oh, they're just showing you ads. And they're getting very good at showing you ads. Um, there is another dark pattern that's literally called disguised ads. You know, this is like the, and we've seen this in the print world, in the television world for years, right? Advertainment. Um, and this need to disclose when something is a sponsored segment in news and things like this. There's very little of that going on in the web. And so stuff is constantly getting shown to you based on all these things. One of the big things that came out of that last election cycle, and, and people talk about what Russia did with Facebook and all of that. And people have oversimplified that and are like, well, Russia didn't manipulate any votes. They didn't do this. No, they didn't. But what they did was they got smart enough 
and learned from Cambridge Analytica which states they could move numbers in just enough that they don't have to influence a million votes. They need to influence 10,000 votes in just the right area and use those sentiment profiles to make sure they're feeding the right advertisements in those areas. And some of those advertisements were scary. I was researching them at the time. Like there was some weird stuff happening. And some of it, I literally, I couldn't even begin to explain to you what its purpose was, but it was handcrafted to target those levers and those pain points Man, it's it's spooky, and don't don't even take me down the rabbit hole of of, uh, of uh, deep fakes because it gets worse. The the yes men who have come around so much, wh- which do you think came first here? Kind of a chicken and egg question here. Is it that the the entertainers might have wanted them and that fed it, or do you think it was something about the culture of the representation, the yes men culture that fed into the entertainers? I think it's both, you know, I think that a lot of entertainers, you know, they, they just want to, you know, people say, oh, you're great, you're great, you're great all day. And they tell the athletes how great they are, you know, all day. And instead of telling them, you know, you got to be truthful, you know, you know, telling them the truth. I mean, every day you read about another athlete and, you know, just finished reading this, uh, about this sad situation in, in, in Las Vegas with this ball player. I mean, and, um, you know, and if, he, if his representation would have said to him, listen, stop drinking. You can't be going out at night at three o'clock in the morning and partying. Um, and someone would have told him that instead of just taking his money. And, you know, so people would be alive today. So I was always the type of, you know, when I was an agent for my athletes or um, and my entertainers, I, I really told them the truth, you know, and I, I'd say, hey, save your money. Uh, it's not it's going to end. So stop spending like this. And I'm thank God with all my clients today. I, you know, I talk to all my athletes or I put them in. I, I never do their investments, but I recommend them that they should be careful to save, 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 because the day is going to end. And the other, there are a lot of people in the entertainment business and the sports business who encourage their people, oh, spend money. It's okay. A, keeps them working, especially so many entertainers. You know, the oh, can I buy a house? Yeah, buy this house for $8 million. Yeah, buy this house. It's okay. With the, with the reasoning behind it is now they're going to have to go keep working to pay it off. And I'm going to make more commissions. And I'm going to keep them on the road. And so that's really what I meant in the film is just being, learning to be honest with these people. And here I was, a young guy, and I'm 20 years old, 21, and I'm dealing with professional athletes and 25, dealing with rock stars and and 30 years old dealing with a, with a beetle and, you know, and just learning how to talk to people and, and just be honest with them. How were you able to escape? Well, different ways. So uh, in my personal case, it's kind of a longer story, but uh, I'll try to make it quick. Uh, we had a Russian maid, uh, well, we meaning my grandparents, uh, who my grandparents uh, spent a lot of time in Russia before the war. They had business in Russia. Uh, so they had this maid who was basically part of the family. They only spoke Russian with her and she lived with them. She had her own room and yeah. So uh, when the order came 
that all Jews had to move into the Jewish section, that same order also specified that any Gentiles had to move out of the ghetto. And uh, the young lady, her name was Juliana, uh, refused to move out. She said she, that we're, my grandparents were the only family she ever had. Uh, she was very interested in Russian culture, obviously, since she only spoke Russian. And uh, one of the smart things she did before the war was to, well, the only center for Russian culture in Warsaw, really, at that time, was, uh, was maintained by something called the White Russians. These were refugees from the Russian Revolution. And the Germans cultivated them because they were hoping that once they conquered Russia, that uh, these people would become their puppets in running the Russian country. So, so they had uh, quite a bit of favor with the Nazi regime. So Juliana went to them and she said that uh, she told her story and she threatened to commit suicide if she couldn't stay with us. So they gave her two permits. The first one was to go in and out of the ghetto, which was, uh, well, the first one was to stay in the ghetto, which so she could stay with us. But the second permit was even more important, which was that she could go in and out, which meant, which basically saved our life because mm. it meant that she could take valuables uh, like clothing, jewelry, uh, and just put them on her person and take them outside and trade them for food and then bring food back to us. So we never really starved. We were, we were, we were really very fortunate in that we had a nice apartment and we had food. So we were among the very privileged residents of the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, in the summer of 1942, when the roundups happened, when they started rounding up people from their homes in the street for the uh, transport by cattle cars to the gas chambers of Treblinka, she was out on one of her runs and she got caught up and she was basically ba barely able to extricate herself even with all her white Russian permits. When she finally got home, my grandmother, who ran the household, <clears throat> decided that things were getting too dangerous and that Juliana had to leave. And uh, there was a lot of crying and screaming. And finally, Juliana agreed to leave, but only on one condition, which is to take me with her as her son so that I would live. And uh, my grandparents... Uh, had uh, some jewelry, uh, which was very fortunate. They made up three little piles of jewelry. <clears throat> One was for Juliana to give to the guard at the gate. So uh, they knew her, but all of a sudden she had a 10-year-old son. Uh, the second batch was for the hooligans, the Polish hooligans who were gathering outside the ghetto gates so they could basically hold up escaping Jews. 
And the third one was for Juliana so she could start a new life outside the ghetto. What I hope I've shown in this first season is that we have so much more that unites us as a people than divides us. If we can continue to meet on neutral ground, we can heal the growing divide between us and beat back into the void the real enemy of us all, cynicism. The world will always try to convince us that there's too much hate, too much politics, too much that exposes just how different we really are, and that we need to pick a side of the extreme or we run the risk of being left to fend for ourselves, alone and vulnerable. Don't listen to the people in the extremes. The truth is they need to yell, they need the hate, they need to keep us divided and on teams because that's the only connection that they have left to humanity. It's the only way that they can feel anything. It's a story as old as human time itself. Don't believe the lies. You don't have to pick sides and bury yourself in debates that only waste the precious time that we have. Quality time, loving each other, reinforcing the human spirit, and creating good in the world around us. Because that is how we come together in the end, by creating good for each other. That cannot happen if we only ever live on one side of the extreme. And so, for the last time of 2021, I'll leave you with the following words. Try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground and have a great day.